Hello and welcome to the Hoover Institution's 2018 Autumn Retreat. Our theme this year is America's role in the world. I'm Chris Dower, Hoover's Director of Marketing and Strategic Communications. Our speaker in this podcast is Neil Ferguson, the Milbank Family Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution. The title of his talk is Trade Wars, Currency Wars, and Information Wars. Is China being hurt by the current trade war with the United States? It was recorded on October 23rd, 2018. Good morning, everybody. I'm extraordinarily excited by what Eric just told you because it illustrates what we are about. When this institution was set up nearly a century ago, we've got a big centenary to celebrate next year, the idea was to learn from history, to learn about war, about peace, and about revolution. And you can only really do that through historical scholarship. That's why Hoover was set up with an archive. And I was sitting, listening to Eric, thinking, I need to read at least three of those collections for volume two of Kissinger. The task is daunting. But what I want to now do is apply history. Because we're not just about scholarship in an ivory tower. That tower is not made of ivory. We're about applying history, learning lessons from the past so that we can better understand what to do now, what the future holds. So what I want to try and do is think about our current predicament with some historical perspective. It's the US-China relationship I'm going to focus on, but I'm also going to talk a little bit about the US-Russian relationship. So, there are multiple forms of war. Trade war, currency war, information war, conventional war, nuclear war. By the way, the story that we just heard about what happened uh, in Iran in 1953 probably fits into the information war department, since this was an operation supported by intelligence agencies. By the way, we British, and although I'm now an American citizen, I still have that we British feeling. We think we did it, and you just helped. The, the key question on everybody's mind these days is how far the US and China are headed for what Graham Allison's called the Thucydides trap. In his recent book, Destined for War, which I think should really have had a question mark at the end of it, but I, I gather his publishers wanted it to be more sensational, so they, they went for destined for war rather than destined for war. In the book, Graham writes as follows. When a rising power threatens to displace a ruling power, alarm bells should sound, danger ahead. China and the United States are currently on a collision course for war unless both parties take difficult and painful actions to avert it. War between the US and China in the decades ahead is not just possible, but much more likely than currently recognized. Indeed, on the historical record, war is more likely than not. And the book 
provide 16 case studies, of which my favorite is the Anglo-German antagonism before 1914, and Graham argues that 12 out of 16 cases, when a rising power encountered an incumbent power, ended in war. But my question is, what kind of war? Well, a hot war, an actual war involving battleships, fighter jets, perhaps even boots on the ground, is imaginable, but it's unlikely. It's imaginable in the sense that we have American and Chinese naval vessels in uncomfortably close proximity to one another in the South China Sea. This event, my slides out of date, took place not on Sunday, but on September the 30th, when a US uh, ship, the Decatur, came into extraordinarily close contact with a Chinese uh, destroyer. It's conceivable that a naval incident could escalate into something far more serious. The reason I think it's unlikely is that the Chinese would be extraordinarily ill-advised to risk a military conflict with the United States today. Because they would lose. Because they are in no way ready for that kind of conventional conflict. For that reason, I think it's better to think of ourselves right now as being involved in just two of my five varieties of war. A trade war, but also an information war. I'll say a bit about why we're not in a currency war in just a few moments. Now, many people in the world, in the Western European media, in the American liberal media, want to blame all this on President Trump. Der Spiegel, the popular German news magazine, never tires of representing the president as the biggest threat to the planet, except possibly for climate change, which they worry, which they worry about even more. But I want to argue this morning that in reality, the Trump administration is just retaliating. It is not the United States that has been the aggressor in either the trade war or the information war. And this is an extremely important point to grasp. Whenever people in your proximity are waving their hands and saying that a wonderful thing called the liberal international order is being destroyed by wicked President Trump, I want you to be equipped to destroy their arguments. And that is part of what I want to do this morning. Over the last 10 or more years, I've written regularly about the US-China economic relationship in a series of papers on Chimerica, on the relationship between China and America. I and my co-author, Moritz Schullerich, have made the point that in any other imaginable state of the world, an economy growing as rapidly as China's would have experienced currency appreciation. That, that's what happened when Germany and Japan grew rapidly after World War II. As they grew, 
as they narrowed the gap between the United States and themselves, their currencies grew stronger. That did not happen in China's case. What China did was to use its foreign exchange policy to keep its currency relatively weak. And that is why it accumulated such a vast store of international reserves over a period of around 20 years. Even in the recent past, China has used the currency lever to maintain its competitiveness. And you can see that in this chart here, there's an interesting period uh, starting in around 2014 when China's currency weakens as the line goes up, that's the currency getting weaker relative to the dollar. Whenever we have talked about currency manipulation, the Chinese have humphed and harumphed. But in truth, there has been a sustained policy of currency manipulation by China, and it goes on to this day. Even more striking has been the way China has manipulated the international trade system to its advantage. And we've been accomplices in that right up until 2016. The US basically winked, turned a blind eye, as China broke the rules of the World Trade Organization to which it was admitted in 2001. If one looks closely at China's economic policies, and in particular the policy we call Made in China 2025, it's a sustained program of subsidized investment designed to propel China to the top of the international technological value ladder. These policies are not compliant with a liberal international order. They distort the market and systematically tilt China's economy in favor of China's national champions. To say nothing of the way that the Chinese have used US investment to achieve technology transfer by means of copying or simply pirating Western innovations. These policies have been astonishingly successful. If you look at this chart, you can see how China's catch-up with the United States has occurred, and how breathtakingly fast it's been. If you go back to the very beginning of China's period of economic reforms, by any measure, China's gross domestic product was little more than 10% of that of the United States. But if you measure China's GDP on the basis of purchasing power parity, adjusting for the fact that a haircut in Nanjing is cheaper than a haircut in Palo Alto, then China overtook the United States already in 2014. And if you do the calculation simply on a current dollar basis, they are on track, and that's the lower line, the orange line that you can see here, they are on track to have an economy 90% the size of ours in just five or so years. The China shock to the US economy has been real. It's not been felt here in Northern California, but it's been felt particularly in the Midwest, where an entire manufacturing sector has been devastated by Chinese competition. 
This was not a fair fight because of the currency war I just mentioned and also because of the ways in which technology was systematically being pirated. American voters understood much better than America's political elites that it was nuts for us to acquiesce in China's overtaking the United States, particularly if the rules were being bent in China's favor. And that was why when President Trump went on the campaign trail in 2016 and bashed China, as people like to say, so many voters said, finally, finally a politician gets it. Finally, we have an outsider who hears our complaint. And an interesting study recently showed that it was those parts of the United States most affected by Chinese competition that most dramatically swung to the Republican candidate in 2016. It's not just President Trump. Republican candidates used to talk all the time about free trade. If you look at congressional candidates' mentions of free trade or open trade versus their mentions of fair trade, they have converged to a striking extent on their Democratic opponents. The Democrats used to talk a lot about fair trade, and the Republicans used to talk about free trade. Now both parties' candidates talk much more about fair trade. And Republicans have realized that free trade is no longer a winning slogan in campaigns. People used to say that you could either take Donald Trump literally or you could take him seriously, but on trade, it's clear that we should have taken him both literally and seriously because he is doing what he said he would do. He has been imposing punitive tariffs on China on an escalating scale since the early part of this year. Now, roughly half of Chinese exports to the United States are facing tariffs. You can see the scale of this phenomenon in this diagram here. By contrast, China's retaliatory tariffs can only be a fraction of the US tariffs on China because we import much more from them than they import from us. That trade deficit that President Trump constantly talks about puts them at a fundamental disadvantage in a trade war. Now, the Chinese thought they could cope with this challenge. They thought that if they imposed tariffs that would hit the kind of people who support the Republican Party, then the trade war would blow up in the president's face. So the game plan, and I remember having this explained to me in Beijing in January of this year, was acupuncture. They were going to stick little needles into into those parts of the American economy that they were confident Republican voters were in. And the theory was that that would lead to a backlash against the trade war, and the whole thing would be over before July 4th. It hasn't worked. It hasn't worked. This isn't an issue in the midterm campaigns. Ask any candidate, 
Are you being asked about the trade war? Are people worried about the increased costs of imported Chinese goods? The answer is hardly at all. Now, that's not because they won't have an effect. The trade war will cost money to American consumers. The trade war will affect sectors of the economy, like, say, soybeans, that have grown to export substantial amounts to China. And you can see which parts of the country will be affected the most in this chart. The darker the shade of the state, the more the impact on uh, household disposable income. I'm saying this so that my economist colleagues, who here at Hoover are all militant free traders, don't ambush me when I leave this hall and beat me up. Yeah, I get it. Economically regarded, in a strictly economic framework, this is not a good thing. Free trade is preferable in a narrowly economic framework. But I'm here to tell you, as an historian, that life is not just about economics. Life is about power more than it is about economics. And the real question we need to ask ourselves is not, will a flat screen TV cost more next year than this year because of the trade war? The question we need to ask is not, will American soy farmers have to find different markets for their produce? The question is, does this trade war stand a chance of slowing down China's inexorable rise? Strategically, does this work? It certainly works as domestic politics. It works as domestic politics because it's one of those issues where the Democrats cannot really disagree with the president. Because as I've said, they've talked about this over the last 20 years much more than Republicans have. Almost the first person to agree with President Trump's tariffs on China was, yeah, that's him there, Chuck Schumer. Now, if there's one way to overcome the terrible partisan division that characterizes our politics these days, this is it. But that's not the really important question. The really important question is, does this effectively push back against China's rise? And I think it does. I certainly think at this point the United States is winning the trade war. Although markets in the US have taken a knock in the last few weeks, the Shanghai Stock Exchange has been pounded since the trade war began. And you can see the differential here in this chart comparing the S&P 500 with the Shanghai Index. And China doesn't really have the option of offsetting the trade war by restarting the currency war. Why? Some of you will be thinking, gee, I, I, I think in economics all they have to do is weaken their currency and they can negate the impact of the tariffs. And that's right. But the Chinese discovered in 2015 two things about weakening their currency. One, it antagonized everybody, not just the United States, but everybody, the Europeans, for example, are affected. 
by our weaker Chinese currency. But they also uh, understood a really crucial point, that if they weaken their currency too much, capital outflows from China, as Chinese investors try to get themselves into non-Chinese assets, become almost impossible to stop. 2015 gave the Chinese policymakers a fright. A significant devaluation then caused a great surge of capital outflow. So I'm given to understand by my friends in Beijing that they won't let the renminbi get any weaker than it has, that seven renminbi to the dollar is a ceiling, or if you prefer, a floor. I think the trade war is going to escalate. One way of thinking about this is historical. One of my students came up with this great framework for thinking about the trade war. The trade war is like a time machine. We're going back in time, back to a time when the United States had higher average tariffs than it does now. But we're not going back to the 1930s, at least not yet. What's interesting is that we're roughly in the mid-1970s. The policy that we're currently seeing from President Trump is much more like the policy of Richard Nixon or Gerald Ford, when tariffs were used to try to impose uh, some new constraints on Japan, then the great challenge to US manufacturing. I think President Trump will continue to turn the clock back because he wants to continue to apply pressure on China. The only thing that might constrain him would be a significant further sell-off on the US stock market. We could perhaps talk about that in the question session. But I want to raise another issue. And that is the possibility that the trade war could mutate into something more like a Cold War. Or if you prefer, Cold War light. The reason I call it Cold War light is that it's hard to imagine getting to the situation that we used to be with the Soviet Union. There are way too many contacts between the US and China, economic and cultural. Just look around this campus, see how many Chinese students we have here, for a Cold War in the sense of the old Cold War to happen. This would be Cold War light. What would Cold War light be like? Well, Vice President Pence gave a pretty interesting speech on October the 4th, some of you may have seen it, in which he said as follows. Beijing is employing a whole-of-government approach using political, economic, and military tools, as well as propaganda, to advance its influence. Chinese security agencies have masterminded the wholesale theft of American technology, including cutting-edge military blueprints. China wants nothing less than to push the USA from the Western Pacific and attempt to prevent us from coming to the aid of our allies. But they will fail. I think we'll not only see an escalation of the trade war in the coming months, perhaps even through 2019, I think we will also see an expansion of the US pressure on China into what we might call the strategic realm. And the most obvious flashpoint, but by no means the only one, will indeed be the South China Sea, which China has systematically been militarizing. So that's one war. But what about the information war? The information war 
you might think, is the most distinctively 21st century form of warfare. And with every passing week, we find out more and more about how the Russians were able to use our extraordinary invention, the internet, and our amazing technology companies like Facebook and Twitter and Google to try to interfere in the 2016 election, and more generally, to try to sow division and exacerbate polarization in American society. These are just some of the memes that Russian trolls were able to disseminate through the internet in 2016. My personal favorite is, Satan, if I win, Clinton wins. Jesus, not if I can help it. I won't ask if you retweeted that when you saw it in 2016. I, ho I hope you didn't. What we're seeing here is a sustained strategy, which was never really possible before because the technology didn't exist, to take the existing divisions in American society over political issues and make them worse. Now, we don't need the Russians to be divided. And this is an extremely important point I want to get across. We are already divided. Here's a good illustration of the point. This network graph, and my square and tar book is very much about networks like this, shows that in the realm of political Twitter, there are two barely connected communities, the liberal and the conservative. Liberals in blue, conservatives in red. And they retweet one another, but there's hardly any retweet activity between the two communities. You can see the, the way in which the, the, the number of connections between the two clusters is much, much smaller than the number of connections within the clusters. Moreover, if you look at the language used in tweets on issues like gun control or same-sex marriage or climate change, there is an increase in retweeting for every moral or emotive word that is used of around 20%. So for every moral or emotive word that you use in a tweet, you increase its probability of being retweeted by 20%. And that is why there is so often such strong, even offensive language on Twitter. That is how you propel your message through the ecosystem. The Russians understanding this set out to inflame our existing divisions with content that was just calculated to get retweeted. The fascinating thing, as Kate Starbird has shown, is that liberals were more likely to retweet Russian content than conservatives. I bet you didn't know that. It's completely counterintuitive. But there's a clear evidence that it was liberals who retweeted the crazy Russian content more than it was conservatives. And that's because much of the Russian content was, was designed to appeal to social justice warriors, as much of it as to people on the Trump side of the Republican Party. The proportion of inflammatory content that was Russian was, however, small. Sure. A lot of people saw it, probably as many people as voted or thereabouts saw Russian content that had found its way into Facebook. 
but relative to all the content that Americans were producing about the election, it was a drop in the ocean. And that's why we need to remember, through all these endless post-mortems on the 2016 election, that the Russians weren't decisive. That we could have done all this without them. Because most of the inflammatory content on the social network platforms is homegrown clickbait. I'm going to draw this talk to a conclusion by reflecting on a really important point that is only gradually becoming clear. Russia is not our only rival in cyberspace. It's not just the Russians who do this. The North Koreans do it. The Iranians do it. And the Chinese do it too. Because we invented the internet, because we are an open society, we are the biggest target that exists in the realm of cyber warfare. And our enemies are all firing at that target. Probably we should be as worried about this as about anything I've said so far. What is happening as China's internet capability grows and as its technology platforms grow, remember China is the only country that has built companies comparable in scale with the big Silicon Valley tech companies. Think Baidu, think Alibaba, think Tencent. China is not only equaling, but in some respects overtaking us in this domain. In financial technology especially, China has established a fascinating and disturbing lead. We don't all use PayPal when we pay for our coffees. But the Chinese all use Alipay or its WeChat equivalent when they buy their coffees. The scale of Chinese e-commerce dwarfs the scale of ours. The speed of the processing of transactions is far greater than we can achieve. Their financial technology platforms in particular the Ant Financial platform, pose a profound challenge to ours. Why? Because ultimately those platforms may be rolled out faster to the rest of the world than we can roll out ours. So when it comes to information wars, we should be concerned not just about foreign content that gets into our Twitter feed or our Facebook news feed, we should be concerned about the fact that the Chinese are building what amounts to a rival internet to ours in which e-commerce platforms may be superior to ours. And this is strategically very important when you think about the long-term dominance of the US dollar in international payments. If Ant Financial, if Alipay become the standard ways of making payments throughout emerging markets, and that's what they're aiming for, then for the first time, I think there will be a real challenge to the dominance of the dollar. And that is a profoundly important threat. In the realm of cyber warfare, we have a fundamental disadvantage. 
There is no great firewall of the United States. We are not the kind of society that can censor and otherwise control the internet. We are open and they're closed. And that's why the biggest challenge that we face in the realm of foreign policy and national security strategy is to come up with a doctrine of cyber defense for Cold War light. Many people who have spent their careers in national security, and this is the last thing I'm going to say, keep hoping that cyber warfare will be like nuclear warfare, and we'll be able to devise a theory of deterrence that stops the cyber warfare from escalating. I'm here to tell you there can be no deterrence in cyberspace. It's a, a form of warfare so completely different from nuclear warfare that we have to abandon those categories of thought that we had during the original Cold War. If you look at what has been created, and this is a, a map of the Facebook network, notice it's a dark zone uh, over China because Facebook essentially has no role there. We have a global network the central hubs of which are in the United States, which at this point is entirely vulnerable to foreign attack, ranging from rogue tweets all the way to all-out attacks on our critical infrastructure. In this form of warfare, the advantage lies with the attacker. That's unusual in the history of warfare. We therefore need to be very worried about the information war. And I would go so far as to say that while we may well win the trade war that President Trump has started, it will be far harder for the United States to win the information war. That is why, although these questions may seem like 21st century questions which require technological expertise to answer, we cannot answer them without applying history. The crucial lesson of history is that no dominant power will go unchallenged. And no challenge will be the same as the last challenge. Thank you very much indeed. For more podcasts from the Hoover Institution, please visit hoover.org or Hoover's channels on all major podcast platforms, including Apple, Google, Podbean, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and Spotify. I'm Chris Dower for the Hoover Institution. Thanks for listening.